Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and I'm going to tell you about my number one secret when I shop for wine. The best strategy is to look at the back label and look for a trusted importer. And one of the most trusted names in wine for the past 30-plus years is Skernick Wines and Spirits. Since 1987, the Skernick brothers, Michael and Harmon, have scoured the earth looking to find super high-quality wines of distinction and then bring them back into the United States so that they can be available to you at your local store or restaurant. The company is headquartered right here in New York City, but they are also a direct wholesale distributor in eight states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and last but definitely not least, my beloved wine home of California. They also import many wines that are sold in all 50 states through their partner distributors. I recently interviewed Harmon Skernick right here on the Black Wine Guy podcast, and let me tell you, these guys are the real deal. If you want to learn more about Skernick Wines and Spirits, please have a look at their awesome website. It's www.skernick.com. That's www.skurnik.com. Or you can even give them a call at 212 212- 273-W-I-N-E. That's 212-273-WINE. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is Master Somalia, award-winning TV host and author, Andrea Robinson. Andrea is one of only 28 women in the world to hold the title of Master Sommelier. She's the first woman designated as Best Sommelier in the United States by the Sommelier Society of America. She is the author of four top-selling books on wine and food. She's a three-time James Beard Award winner and award-winning lifestyle television host. Woo! There's a lot here. She was named Outstanding Wine and Spirits Professional by the James Beard Foundation in 2002 and was selected by Bon Appetit Magazine as Wine and Spirits Professional of the Year in 2004. She and her husband, John, are the creators of a line of wine stemware called The One. That's trademarked. Um, She has created innovative and award-winning wine and education programs for fine dining restaurants at Starwood Hotels and as Dean of the International Culinary Center school in New York City, of which she is also a chef graduate. She's not someone who underachieves in life. Uh, She now curates Delta Airlines wine program, which she's done since 2007. She consults to Norwegian Cruise Line and since 2006 grows fine wine grapes in Napa Valley. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Is there anything you'd like to add? Mom of Lucas, Jesse, and Jack, and a little update on the farming. We actually sold our vineyard. So, yeah. So, that is like super new, as in I haven't even, you know, 
unpacked the boxes yet from that house, but we're still in Napa Valley. Okay. But uh, our kids are kind of growing out of the tree swing, and we thought, you know what? It's uh, it's time to make life a little simpler, and so I'm excited for that next chapter. Wow, wow. What were you growing there? We were, we were growing Sauvignon Blanc, and we never really sought out to be grape growers. I'm a sommelier, okay. not a winemaker, and um, but we found this property that we love to raise our kids on, and uh, it had three acres planted originally. Uh, had been assessed by one of the famous viticulturists at the time um, from uh, Bob Steinhauer, who had been with Behringer, to that the soil was right for Sauvignon Blanc. So we were selling it to Cliff Lady Vineyards. And uh, it was really fun to watch. It was fun to watch the the whole cycle of the vine. That's really cool. It's really cool. So we got so much to talk about. It's going to seem like so little time. Um Tell us about the wine. We are we're day drinking today. We are. <laughs> well, what are we drinking, Andrew? You have to understand, MJ. It's my job to di- to day drink. No, not not really. I mean, obviously, no. We I taste mean, a I lot, mean, we we but... know. Yeah, I yeah, mean, being yeah. in the business, I mean, yeah. It's like you know. Yeah. When I when I was a buyer, I would uh you know I'd spit till about one, because then because <laughs> then lunch would happen. Like, well, let me have a glass of wine with lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Everything's open. Yeah. Um, it's uh, no. It, this is a great wine. I, I don't. I think. What do you think? Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I was going to ask you about it because it's it's uh, it's delicious. I love the nose, and I don't want to even tell people what it is. I want you to tell them about the wine, and I'll tell them what I'm getting. But I, I, I'm I'm going to a Riesling event. I might have to pick this up. This is pretty. This is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's it's crazy good. Um, so this is Trestle 31. It's a Finger Lakes Riesling. The winemaker is uh, it's kind of a crazy story. She's she lived in the Finger Lakes and went to Cornell for for uh, enology school. Um, Nova Catamatre, Master of Wine, uh, one of the one of the few female Masters of Wine, and. Um, she lives in Napa Valley, though, because she's been Robert Mondavi's winemaker for many years. But her, she and her husband had purchased this property in the Finger Lakes, and uh, she's making Riesling and Chardonnay there. And we were just at the Finger Lakes excursion, which is basically, you know, a Riesling love fest for, for pros. Mm-hmm. And I got the chance to taste her wines at her new little happen in uh, Boite um, in Geneva downtown. And it's I just think it's fantastic. It's a 2018 and look at that color. Yeah, no, I was going to say, is this, is, I mean, if we're German, would this be like a splate laser? Is it, I mean, I'm trying, I mean, it's got a little sweetness, but I mean, of course, people, what, what is miss, uh, a misnomer at Riesling, most Riesling finishes dry, unless, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're getting into like the Trockenberry and the ice wines. People go, oh, it's got someone, but, but so it, it, it's striking me as like a, maybe even a splate late. If it was German, I'd say splate lace trokin, but it's, it's, it's very nice. No, it's got I, the apricots. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I go back to the nose and it makes me think of the honeycomb. Yeah. <laughs> like after you poured yeah. milk on it and it got all like, you know, yeah. sweet and gooey and smelly. <laughs> like it's like a really, it's floral mm-hmm. and uh, almost like, and like buttercream frosting and browned butter and that's that's oh, now yeah, making yeah, yeah, it sound yeah. like a goo bomb but yeah. it's really got it's a not gorgeous got, acid yeah acids there so this is delicious yeah. this would be wonderful with some spicy food 100 percent. You, know, you know yeah so um you know so let's like i said we got so much to unpack here i'm so excited <laughs> um haven't seen you in years i was like your rep for a hot minute when i worked for chambers and chambers right right <laughs> when you wrap a car um but let's let's go back to the beginning because uh you know uh here's this w- woman who's accomplished all these things and i mean you're just this, i mean so much in life we'll get into the investment banker blah blah but like, what was it like being a little girl growing up in Texas? <laughs> you know, it was crazy. I mean, I um, 
it, I've, I've grown up in a few different places. Texas was sort of part of my childhood, a little bit southern Indiana, born in North Dakota, toddlerhood in Florida. So, um, so in Texas, it was there are great things in the sense that um, it's a beautiful place. We live near Lake Texoma, which is on the border of Texas and Oklahoma, hence mm. the name. <laughs> and uh, so I grew up water skiing, but I also grew up, I was, I was a chubby kid. And I was, uh, didn't quite fit in my skin for a while. Um, but then as I got older, um, you know, I, I met a great friend who just kind of like ushered me into a comfort zone of who I was uh, and also pushed my boundaries into things like gymnastics and things that I never did before. Kind of changed my life in a really neat way. And um, and then I fell in love with Texas and went to school at SMU in Dallas. And that's where I took my first ever wine tasting class. So it's really where it all started. So props to Texas in a big way. Mm. So you went to SMU? Yeah. Was uh, Eric Dickerson there when you were there? He was He was there. Um, it was – that's how long ago I went to school there. I was 11. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but um, Told you she's brilliant. Super smart. Yeah. Spitfire. It was, it was right at the end of his era and uh-huh. then right as uh, the infamous NCAA death penalty for the football program for recruiting violations. Yes, 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 um, yes. And so – and I was a, I was a, a journalist on the newspaper, the, the college paper. So I wrote big editorials and op-eds about that whole thing. Um, and I guess it's just that, you know, everybody has sort of their little thing in college that they pick a cause that they uh, kind of go for. And it's funny because my husband, John, go, uh, went to Vanderbilt University, which is a SEC school. Mm-hmm. And, and so a really difficult athletic conference, really challenging, a lot of amazing athletic programs in the, in the uh, pantheon there. And, uh, you know, he's super into sports, but he's really proud of them because they've always been so focused on making sure the kids get the education. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. how many kids, even who are super performers as college athletes, actually come out and have a chance at pro oh yeah and they need to come out with yeah. something else you know that and not and now we've got the whole ncaa thing and the ability to maybe make money off yeah. of the value creation that you're as, as an athlete are are contributing i think that makes sense i mean they shouldn't be taken advantage of yeah i think it uh incentivizes the kids to stay in school and finish their degree also true you know? right um, <clears throat> because and particularly in football because um it's such people I love football, but it's a violent sport. <laughs> like, like, like you, you, you can be. It's one hit and your career's over. One and done, yeah. And 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 um, that's why you know kids don't go to college because then you know yeah they don't get you know they don't get to make it. So that's really cool. So um, so what did you grow up in a wine household? I, uh, in our research, it came up like your dad worked at Pillsbury. So like, I mean, obviously there was crescent rolls and and a little fluffy guy on your table going <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yes, there was lots of slice and bake dough, and uh, and uh, they called it refrigerated dough. But if you remember, popping fresh because yeah. when you'd pop open the biscuit cans, it'd be like, and um, so no, not many corks popping, but lots of biscuit cans popping in my house. Um, and but my parents, I, I do remember once my dad, when we lived in southern Indiana, got a bunch of Concord grapes because there's quite a bit of wine growing around that part of the country, and. Uh, and he made a uh, a crock of Concord grape wine, and it was utterly vile. And then as it started to ferment, it sort of exploded the crock and, and just made this river of, of sticky, smelly, sweet goo in uh, on the laundry room floor. So that was not, not a hit. Um, but otherwise, it was more of a cocktail household. And I remember one time my parents had a, quote, wine tasting party. But this was like where you got like the 
the borsan cheese mm-hmm. covered in nuts, and then it was like Lancers and Blue Nun, and that was the wine tasting party. And though not not that there's anything wrong with that, I would say I don't think I don't know that Lancers still exists, but this their their big other brand Matus that's making a comeback. Yeah, so coming coming back makes sense. Rosés, yep. a little little spritzy. Yep. But uh, so that was that was the world of wine in my growing and up household. Blue Nun still kick, Blue Nun. Ruining Riesling for people since whatever year. Exactly. Well, that was that was a big thing with um, with the discussion at the Finger Lakes Exchange. Speaking of, of Riesling, because it was a big Riesling love fest among sommeliers and mm-hmm. winemakers, and um, and uh, so a lot of people were talking about how from Milk had kind of messed up people's perception of what Riesling's going to be like because it wasn't even based on Riesling, and it was kind of you know simple and sweet. And people just kind of backed right away. And they, now when they see that flute-shaped bottle, yep. which is what Blue Nun kind of put onto the marketplace, they make that association and mm-hmm. don't give Riesling the credit that it's due. Oh, 100%. And uh, yeah, Matus had an uh, – uh, both those had interesting bottles, uh, Matus and Lancers, like you said. Lancers should make a comeback. I mean, Lancers, that was like – who who talked – maybe it was Kevin talked about Lancers or maybe it was Eric, maybe it was Eric Azimov. But both like that Lancers bottle and, yeah. like, and like a fiasco yes. made a great candle holder for your door. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's like, get the wine out of here quick because I need a candle holder. <laughs> but uh, no, it's true. That was like the classic thing. The um, straw covered Chianti bottle yeah. and, the, and the, it was almost like a, it almost looked more like a perfume bottle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like a crock or a box almost foidle. Almost teardrop kind of shape. Um, so did your mother cook often? I mean, did she cook besides popping biscuit uh, tins? My mom came from the era, um, you know, with uh, where everyone's in her generation, their parents were had, had lived uh, in, in World War II. Yeah. Um, and so her dad, you know, had been a veteran. And so everybody had learned – Two things, great frugality, and then also there had been all this, and I'm putting this in quotes, progress as to processed foods. It was like, we can can soup and it can stay you know, yeah. on yep. your shelf forever, or we can make mashed potatoes from dried potato flakes. Margarine mm-hmm. instead of butter. There that, you have yeah, it. That was my mom's same generation yeah. too. Like they, they, uh, they were touched by the Great Depression, you know, um, or at least their parents lived through the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you know. Um, See, my dad was born right after World War, you know, so that yeah. and it was, it was, it was margarine. It was Mad Men. Yeah. It was Mad Men, you know. <laughs> exactly. It was all that stuff that they were, they were uh, promoting. Exactly. You know? So we, uh, a, a lot of the recipes that we got were from the Pillsbury Bake Off cookbook, of course, <laughs> and the side panels of the package, right? Yep, yep. That was how you decided what casserole you were making because it was like you had the cream of mushroom soup and then you had the, the dirty like uh, fried on- onions in a can and all that stuff. All oh you needed God. was some canned green beans. The and green bean casserole. <laughs> can opener is the biggest appliance in the kitchen. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then when the microwave came in, it was Ooh. like, whoa. It was, it was a wrap. Happy day. Um, so I read that in the sixth grade, you made a baklava. I did. For a report on ancient Greece. I did. <laughs> now, did you use uh, dough squares to make your baklava, or did you actually get some phyllo? And- I actually got phyllo. I had I had graduated. I, I quickly realized the uh, kind of, you know, missed opportunity to get real, to do some authenticity. And so I, I started reading cookbooks like novels as a kid. And, uh, and so, yeah, I got the phyllo dough and did the whole thing. 
And oh my, it was such a hit too. And we all like wore like broad sheets to school and put on put them on as togas. And um, you know, it was it was great. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you still make baklava? Have you? Is it is it, is it, is it, is it like is it like like is it like mommy's special baklava that she made in sixth grade, or it just has that just fallen out of your repertoire? It's it's out of the repertoire probably because you know it's kind of really sugary and le- like we live in California, and especially when you're raising small kids, like we really try to go in the direction of uh, the least amount of processed food. And I'm mm-hmm. not talking like um, like totally in in the realm of uh, of like like vegan or, or something like that, where we so. Because I come from a restaurant background, so we we cook and eat really, really great. Mm-hmm. But um, but we do a lot less sugar and you know a lot more kind of like seasonality and ingredient driven stuff. So I have my specialties, but now it's a lot more, a lot less towards dessert. The kids are old enough now that that they can uh, you know make their own choices. But they got it early on that if you didn't finish your dinner, you didn't get any dessert, and you weren't going to get a lot because it's supposed to be just a little treat. And um, they would literally, you know, the t- school teachers would be like, your kids said no to the cupcakes for Sally's birthday today because they said only dinner is a dessert time. <laughs> and we'd be like, raising them right, I guess. But Yeah, no, I mean, that's impressive because most kids are like, mommy's, mom's not, not around. Look- yeah, oh. mommy's not looking. <laughs> Eating like four cupcakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, my husband did a really good job of like being respectful to them and just saying, look, look, while you're at this age, you're counting on us to help you make the right choices. And this is really important because you're growing. Um, when you're older, you can make the, make the decision. And so neither of them eat a lot of sweets, but they have fun with it when they do. So it's a, it's a good balanced approach, I think. I think so. So we were talking earlier about SMU, where you wrote for school newspaper. You went to the, was it the, the Cox Business School? Yeah. Um, why business? Like, what, what, like, how did you fall into, why did you be, want to major in business? You know, I, I, I got there thinking I would major in journalism. I'd end up taking a minor in that because I took, I, you had to take certain amounts of humanities classes or in the, yeah, humanities school. And, um, and I took Econ 101 and it just, it really was, it, it, it grabbed me, which is kind of weird. Um, but I really loved that. And so then I started to, then I took a business class as an elective and I was like, this is awesome. So I ended up majoring in econ and finance in the Cox school. So I got both, uh, both liberal arts and, um, and business. And I just, I don't know, I really loved it. And I also had this idea early on that if I got core skills that were broadly applicable, that would be just practical and wise. And it was a good decision because I got a great job out of college, but I've always been able to use that skill set, mm-hmm. you know, all those basics. What was that what was that first job out of college? Morgan Stanley. So you did go so right to Morgan Stanley. Yeah. Yeah. Actually just right. So we're we're in, you know, kind of close to Koreatown where the wine and spirits offices are. I used to go do tastings there. But uh, I was on 49th Street and 6th. It was the McGraw Hill building at the time. Mm-hmm. And then across the road was the Exxon building, 1251 Avenue of the Americas. And um, so before they had their own fancy building. But uh, it was great. I was a financial analyst there. Wow. What was that like? It was really it was a really super training for the restaurant business in the sense that when they hire these financial analysts out of undergraduate, they hire all all backgrounds. I was one of the few business grads. They would, you know, had pre-meds. They had mm-hmm. all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. But uh, the idea is that you work your butt off for two years. You learn, you know, everything backwards and forwards about that business. And then, you know, at that point, do I want to go, do, do I want this for the long haul? Or if not, you have a, a great 
foundation um, because they cut everybody off at two years, sometimes offer a third year, cut everybody off at two years and you're either going to go do your thing you want to do or you're going to go to MBA school and then come back to the firm. Mm, okay. um, so I ended up, uh, I had been offered a third year in London, which would have been an amazing opportunity, but I took, I was volunteering, emptying spit buckets and pouring at Mary Mulligan's International Wine Center or Wine School here. And um, I just had, I worked one of the tastings. It was actually a Krug champagne tasting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Remy Krug, who used to you know, pretty wow. much represent the brand, was there. And he was so impassioned and the wine was so bewitching that I literally went in the next day and talked to the the like number three in the company was the head of capital markets where I was and a guy named Bob Scott and I'm saying his name for a reason um, but I said I'm gonna I'm gonna not do the year in London and I'm gonna try to make a living in wine instead and I was just waiting you know with bated breath for him to like rip me a new one and he said you know what I wish I'd had the guts and it turns out I found out later he had a huge wine collection and he was the first major financial investor in famous chef Tom Colicchio's mm. fine dining restaurant called Mondrian back in the day. So he was a total wine and foodie and so he was out he was he backed me. That's that's an incredible story, right? It's that cool. is so cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like because you explain what you how do you why? Yeah. Uh, 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 I know. And, and, I, and, I went to bat for you. Yeah, Your you tickets know. are booked. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, I love that. That is so awesome. So um you said you were emptying spit buckets at the uh, at the at the wine center, and we had Mary on. She was awesome. Mm-hmm. She's super awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, were you doing anything else in wine uh, during that time? At uh, any like side hustles, side gigs? Yeah, big. The other big one was I. You know, found the other great wine school. Um, the I one of the originals. I don't know which one was started first, International Wine Center or uh, without when Al Hotchkin really began it, or. Um, Kevin's Raley's Wine School, but I had volunteered for that as well. It was the most interesting volunteer position because he, um, it was highly coveted uh, to be able to work it because the class was expensive. So a lot of, you know, Wall Streets and lawyers and all that stuff were able to afford it. And if you could get a pouring position, you could take it for free in exchange for working it. But you also got really a lot of firsthand, first uh, one-on-one time uh, with Kevin. But he was so exacting. I remember this so well that he would, uh, the first day if you got selected, he would take everybody in and he would show them like exactly how to set the cl- <clears throat> Excuse me. How to set the tablecloth? Exactly how far how far apart the tables are by using chair lengths. And it was like, and that's when I really realized like detail orientation in fine dining and service and things like that. I, I got a big appreciation for it. So I did that, and um, and that started a, a long friendship and mentorship. He's uh, he's been a huge mentor, really. To me, nobody does what we do today, uh, whether they're an author about wine or an educator or a sommelier, um, that doesn't have a little bit of his DNA in their background. They may not know it, and I want them to know no, it. No, that's my. That's why I had him on. The, we haven't dropped. Well, the episode when this comes out, we will have dropped his episode. But he I totally topped me on the wine. Uh, I heard what happened. <laughs> 1968 Heights Martha's Vineyard. I said, Kevin, let me show you what I have. And I love my Rieslings, but man, how am I going to stand up to that? I, I, but like you said, it's Kevin's really. I mean, like, I, I mean, know. I mean, and the bottle was given to him by Joe Heights. I mean, like, you're it's not, not going to. It's like, yeah, you know, no, I mean, I just and good on you. And I, my understanding is that that year. Is a little bit important to you. Yeah, but, so. yeah. From um, it is, <clears throat> um, and so, 
and I said on on that show, and we'll say it here, like you hit the nail on the head. He is he is the godfather of wine education in the yeah. United States, and and uh, one of the things I like to do with uh, I've been doing is really because just I'm at the you know we're we're we'd have been in high school together, so we we're around the same age, right? Right. right? Yeah. Um, and like we're like the bridge between like the the OGs and and the new generation, and and like we've become because of the internet. Um, we're almost too fast, so people don't even know. And people are quoting, people are using people's quotes, uh, and they they're quote. You know, it's like hip hop, right? They're like, "Oh, he sampled Biggie." No, no, Biggie sampled the Isley Brothers, right? right. Like, 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 right. like, you got to get like, no, um, you know, no disrespect. You know, uh, Raj Parr read Kevin's book and wanted to write a book, right? Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? Exactly. No, no, Raj, no disrespect, but like, yeah, you know, but like, there's a whole generation who don't who don't read your introduction, who don't read the acknowledgments you right, give. Right. And and uh and and these and, and Kevin's a treasure. Yeah. Mary's a treasure. Yeah. I mean, that's my Bible, wine for dummies. Like yes. like, you know, um, you know, so and, so and the approach that they've taken that that like it's so now more than ever, I think it's so important because um we've kind of lost that and I think at some level the celebritization yep. of sommeliers and like as as it, did, it happened with chefs is that now like kind of we're a little bit we need to back up with our bad selves a little right. and um and remember and this is something I said in the in the Finger Lakes exchange um, excursion you know it's no more sort of self-important swagger but confidence is is critical right you've got to have confidence to be successful in anything and to and to get, gain people's trust but it's just as important this is something i learned from kevin to give other people confidence through empowerment through respecting them bringing them along valuing their interest Rather than like, okay, when you catch up, you can swim in our pool kind of thing. Um, and so I just think that that the example that he set, I really want people to know about it and uh, and pick that. Mm-hmm. I want them to pick that to yeah. follow. Yeah. That's the right way to go. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and I agree. Like I think that's – it just there was like literally when the Psalm movie came out, I was like, you know, because – I mean, you are one of the few master psalms, one of 28 women yeah. in the world, right? Yeah. And I and, leave it at that number. There are a few that surrendered their pin because right. of the Me Too right. and sexual harassment and all, you know, all of the basically right. kind of ridiculousness. I'll just say yeah. of of what's happened with the court. And I'm not down. I'm not denigrating the individuals, but as an organization, we failed right. um, in some key areas. Right. Um, and recognizing it now, which is great, the new board really seems to get it. So. I'm, pleased with that but um yeah i think that that's that has to that's got to we've got to reset into that mode yeah and it was it was just, it was it was not this super glorious position it was like the ultimate wine geek right you know yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't like you know an, an influencer it was like uh, you know and, and there were so many people who've had that position who who don't have the credential right right I mean, and never needed it. And like, never needed it. That's every the thing, right. bit the, the the elite level. You mentioned Raj. You got yep. people like Kevin, Daniel, yep. Jonas. I mean, it's ju- it's it's one thing that you you should do for for passion, and it also helps to demonstrate a commitment and a certain level of mastery to a potential employer. But it is not curing cancer. It's <laughs> and. 
And we're still, you know, we still have to go back to what uh, the the words in the mission statement that have been forgotten by some people, um, you know, humility for one, uh, service uh, for another one. And um, I just think that that's, that's something that uh, needs to be set right. Yeah, because it seems... I mean, it's a very American thing. Like, people begin to study for the test and not right. for the love, right? right? So, like, I love what uh, the Alexi Lachine quote where he's like, uh, it's either to understand wine or study wine, purchase a corkscrew and use it, mm-hmm. you know? I love that. Um, yep. So, people go, well, I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm done with school. I went to law school. That was a nightmare. <gasps> <laughs> and I don't use that, so like, yes, and I'll just keep drinking wines on a <laughs> regular basis and yes. keep expanding my nose and get to hang out with people who, who do have all the credentials. <laughs> well, well, lawyers love wine, so I'm sure you have a lot of lawyers who like to hear hear what you have to say. <laughs> um, so after Morgan Stanley, um, you, you have the talk with Bob. Um what did you do next? Did you uh, at some point you went on a six month tour? Europe was that right after that time when when? Yeah, so I so I basically um, I left uh, Morgan Stanley. I bought a URL pass and a youth hostel card, and I went to Europe for six months. I landed in Paris, took a train to tour because I had read that it was the cradle of classic French language, and I wanted to study some French. I had studied a lot of Spanish and had pre, have a pretty good uh, affinity to especially Latin-based languages. So I went and took a one-week intensive French class there. Um, and then uh, I traveled around basically to every great wine region that you could get to with a URL pass and hopefully a youth hostel somewhere in the vicinity. And I worked to harvest in Bordeaux to wrap it up in, uh, in October of 1990, again when I was 11. Again, when she was <laughs> all before the age of twelve. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, did, where'd you work hard? Was it was it was it a big name or just some just big name? Okay. Yeah, Chateau Palmer. Yeah, it was. Uh, so that's a Margot third growth. Yeah, Margot. She's like Chateau Palmer. However, it was definitely very humble experience. There was a there was a girls' dorm and a guys' dorm for people who were you know visiting to work the harvest, and so it was me and a bunch of. French female French college coeds who were at that college coed era of of drama and and you know <laughs> going from laughing to crying in like two seconds and then there was a uh, a winemaker intern from the from Western Australia so it was quite the quite the crew um, but uh, it was fascinating I mean it was really it was a great experience tell people because um, I think a lot of people. Think working a harvest is sexy. Tell, oh God! T- tell them how sexy hard working a harvest so is. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it depends where you are. I have to say because with Bordeaux, um, the way the the vines are trellised, the you know the fruiting zone where you're actually picking quote picking the grapes, you really are using secateurs or little scissor clipper things to cut them because the stems are so woody. Um, it's nothing like your table grapes, right? Your Thompson seedless and. Um, the, that fruiting zone is about is below my knee, right? It's or about at knee height, so it's low to the ground. So you're you're bent over at the waist 
all day long doing this. After a while, like when the, you know, my back couldn't handle it anymore, I was literally like crawling on my hands and knees is bad. Um, and then it's, uh, you know, you're doing this for eight hours a day. There is a pretty, you know, jovial lunch break, which is cool. Wine is involved. Um, and uh, so that's neat. But it's really, really hard. And by the end of it, I had so much basically like tree sap, equivalent of tree sap on my hands from the the woody portions of the clusters that my hands looked like an auto mechanic for the next six months <laughs> until it all wore off. Oh, you like, like just goop or black. something? Yeah, yeah. Just, it was, it was really, uh, that was difficult. Now, there are places like our vines in, in Napa Valley that we had, the fruiting zone's much higher. So there, there are some maybe better jobs that, you know, a little less painful, but it's not super romantic. Yeah, yeah. Totally cool. So you come back um, and tell me about, so you're also, you're a, a chef graduate of uh, ICE. Yeah. Uh, what, when, when did you attend the, the Culinary Center, like amongst all this other amazing stuff you're doing? That, uh, that was actually later in the game. People, okay. people, even though I loved cooking and that was my obsession and that's what drove me to take a wine class in college, thinking, hey, this is a fit, even though I know nothing about wine. And I did have that light bulb moment at that point um, on wine, which is why I was doing all the volunteering when I got to Morgan Stanley. But um, I actually got back and, and worked for Mary Mulligan for a while after the Europe trip just stuffing envelopes and, and helping coordinate school uh, classes. And then Kevin called me up and he said, I have an opening in my wine department. Um, he calls it the wine school coordinator, but everybody else in the wine cellar called it the wine department secretary. And, uh, <laughs> and the truth is I did coordinate the school, but I also had to answer the phones, type the wine list, all that good stuff. But it was, it was a, the best job I could have ever had to start because there's a wine school going on. So I'm, I'm seeing education all the time. And then there's a full-on working wine cellar, every wine sales rep, every major important producer is visiting like twice a day, every day. There's always something open to taste. And then the secretary part came in handy because I'm typing the wine list. So I'm learning, okay, Corton Charlemagne is in Burgundy. It's in the white Burgundy section. Like that just like really osmosified to make up a word. Yeah. Um, so so that was, uh, I, I did that. I became the first female seller master there after um, like a year and a half or two. Uh, I started trailing on the floor and working seller shifts and so on. Then got that opportunity. And then I was promoted to the... Um, uh, first wine director, female wine director. And um, that was about a month before the first World Trade Center terrorist attack. So um, then we were closed for three years, during which time I worked at a five-diamond uh, hotel and restaurant in Short Hills, New Jersey. Okay. Used to be a fancy uh, Hilton at Short Hills, which was, like I said, a five-diamond hotel next to the mall. Um, but Short it was, Hills Mall. Yeah, yeah. Yes. totally, man. But it, it was a really amazing experience, and I learned so much about fine dining service because I was in charge of it. And I, and I, lear- and I had these amazing uh, captains and, and servers who were just – they were at the top of their game. Um, they kind of kicked my butt a little bit because I was I came in at five foot two and they were all six foot plus uh, males and I was their boss and they were like really huh. <laughs> interesting. Um, but I find I finally got on their good side when I gave them a wine boot camp. I really immersed them in some training and then they first of all figured out I knew what I was talking about and uh, and secondly they knew I had their back because I wanted to really make them look good. Um, and help them make money. And so that, that, we became very, very close uh, after that. Um, then I had my first child and um, 
went back to Windows on the World when we reopened it. I was there in that uh, time frame in pursuit of the Master Sommelier. Failed my um, theory the first time around. I passed two parts, took it again, and passed in 96, I think. Um, then did the World Championship and then left to do Starwood Hotels. And then I left there to, to do culinary school. So it was a long path. So, to get okay, there. it's a long path. So yeah. we, we got to now see that. Oh, now you just. Late, I mean, how we got to rewind. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how far. But um, so, you know, Kevin uh, was here and um, he, you know, I, I'm, as you know, I, I know, you know, he thinks the world of you. Well, it's feelings mutual. Um, he shared a little about uh, that first World Trade Center bombing, like you were there alone and your leadership. Uh, uh, do you mind sharing about uh, a little bit about that day? Because he was really. He was really impressed in the, your leadership that day. It was, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was a normal, what we thought everyone thought was going to be a normal day. And, um, you know, we're in the, you know, receiving pallets of, of wine and, and spirits and restocking. And um, the the first lunch guest, we were a private lunch club during the day. So we had a bunch of, a couple of private rooms full. And then a, just a few tables in the main dining room were sat. And um, and I was running between floors and, and I heard what sounded like a loud bump. Um, and I thought, man, somebody set a pallet jack down a little too hard because, you know, you'd get 20, 50 cases of wine in on a pallet and it was heavy. But um, and then within maybe a few minutes, uh, there was smoke seeping out of the elevator door cracks. And I was like, "Ooh, we got a fire somewhere down below. And but none of the fire um, fire safety systems were working. They'd all been disabled by the what we learned later was an explosion in the van um, mm-hmm. in the in the receiving and parking area. And um, all you know, all I knew to do was evacuate everybody. And there because we, we weren't hearing. Normally, you're supposed to hear on the loudspeaker from the fire marshal. You know, it's okay, stay put. We've got it contained on 23 or mm-hmm, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So no news, nothing. Getting worse and worse. Getting smoky. So we heard everybody into uh, the stairwells, and um, you know, we walked down 107 flights. It was completely pitch black because also the emergency lighting had been disabled. Mm. Very smoky. Got increasingly hot. So nobody knew if we were going into the flames um, and um, and shoulder to shoulder like the most crowded subway you've ever been on, right? It was that packed. And uh, we just, you know, kept people going. A few people panicked and like left on, you know, different floors below to go and break out a window and whatnot. But um, we made our way down. And the thing that was that sticks in my head is that we get to about the 27th floor and here's a firefighter with what 90 pounds of gear on that they carry with all the all mm-hmm. the stuff that they have to help people and to be able to breathe and all this had had made his way up that far and they were just going up to just bring people down and he said you know just keep going stay calm it, it, you know it's clear you can go and i and i just remember thinking oh my gosh like these these guys are heroes right like yeah. you like i know we say it a lot but you actually experienced it face yeah. to face firsthand Man. in a, a major crisis yep it was really something so um you know it's uh the 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 part of it that is the the silver lining of that it, it starts as a sad because we had to pack up the whole wine cellar and uh and basically store it away in the sub-basement of the trade center and I thought I'd never see it again. I just I knew that somebody else would take over the restaurant and and or they'd sell 
the wine or something. And uh, so it was a real it was a real joy to be able to come back when we reopened in '96 and bring it back. And you were the beverage director then. Yeah. So what was that like being named the first uh, woman female? beverage director it was so cool um you know i had i was so lucky i had worked for a great food and beverage professional who just passed away this year uh john o'neill from restaurant associates which later became patina group and uh he was always behind the scenes but he was the sourcing guy and he i learned so much from him and uh when i worked for him in the interim space between the first terrorist attack and and coming back um i got to do all beverage and they had, you know, everything from grab and go and the, you know, adjacent to the Rockefeller Center to, um, you know, the famous performing arts centers and all the restaurants and, and bars and things like that and Carnegie Hall and, and the Met and so on. Um, so I had learned about uh, about non-alcohol, about coffee, about tea, mm. beer, spirits. And then with the Master Sommelier, I had l- learned a whole lot about spirits, cocktails, and so on. So I said, you know, I want to I want to do this whole thing. And it was the best um, leap of faith that I ever took, and they ever took in me because we did so much innovation with um, with sake, with craft beer. I mean, people you know talk about like the craft beer movement, but there was like two or three prior to this one and one of the early ones was in those days and sipping tequila became a thing then and now it's like you know even little podunk small places will have 90 tequila it's like (laughs) crazy so i loved it it was it was awesome so we we touched on this a few moments ago um it was during your time coming back to when it was a world that you began to you sat for to become a a master psalm yeah um, and you said you failed theory the first time. Yeah. Okay. Um, so at the time you decided to go become a master Somali, how many women had the title at that point? I think there were maybe four. Let's see. It would be like Madeline Trafon was the first. There was Claudia Tiaji. There was um, Sally Moore and Cameron Sisk. So I think it was just four. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, unlike me who who – took a couple swings at the bar and gave up. Uh, you went back, and and uh, yeah. what was it like when you actually passed? What was that? What oh, was that it, like? it was magic. I mean, it, it was a time where um, the, there was uh, so much it, – if it, it, the thing – the – the pursuit was really something that people collaborated on, and it, it didn't feel like there was a haves and have-nots mm-hmm. between who gets mentored and who doesn't. Um, there are more resources now. You know, you've got insta- you don't have to do your own flashcards. You can go online, and, and everything's there. Mary Unimel was talking about her master wines, and I'd have Google. Like, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I, I remember the like the the printouts of the tests when I worked for her. She was she was studying for it, and then she actually passed it. They they gave it at Windows on the World, so it's magic. But um, but. But yeah, it was um, it was a very much more of an analog process, but there was so much uh, new about it, and people like people with that that uh, ethical uh, stance, like uh, Madeline Trafon and mm-hmm. Eddie Osterland, and um, you know Roger DeGorn, Scott Carney, they were setting the tone. And it's really all about kind of who is setting the tone. Yeah. Um, and so mm. that it was really special. And I was I was so honored and thrilled. And then, of course, as soon as you pass, you jump right into teaching and mm. right into bringing other people along. And uh, it was it was a uh, it was really neat. So what number uh, 
are you of women to have passed with? Gosh, I what am I? I think maybe like I might be five or six. I'd say you're definitely ah, damn, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. something like that. <laughs> Man, and you know what's crazy? I don't know how many. When I look at your father account on Instagram, I don't know how many women actually know that. <laughs> like how dope you are. Like, <laughs> like for real. Well, it's um. I mean, I know it's a little made up world, but like, come, come, I mean, like, I look at your IG, I look at Kevin's, I look at Mary's, and then I look at somebody. It was like in a sundress yeah. holding a bottle of right. wine with 15 or 20,000 right. followers yeah. and 1,000 fucking likes. I'm like, what is wrong with this picture, man? It's, it's interesting. I think I think that we are, you know, it's it's how our society consumes information. For sure. And it's how information gets a, uh, gets eyeballs, right? Yep. There, it's it takes, it takes something a little bit um, – Either sensational or, you know, you could say there's there's sex appeal involved. Um, there's something that gets that gets grabs people from otherwise a barrage yeah. of information. Yeah. yeah. God damn. Probably number five, five or six. <laughs> That's like like if it was a basketball team, you're a starter, you know, or, or come right off the bench. You know? uh, oh, yeah, maybe number six. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you six. I mean, six man plays a lot of times. So, yeah, you know. exactly. That's um, important. And, spot. and but I'd say even more important than that. I mean, I think um, talk about a little bit about because um, I, I, I want this to be reiterated um, the importance of Windows on the world to the American wine scene. So critical. So I, it's so important that people understand this. Um, you know, you said everyone who's an author or an aspiring author or even just, a, a, not just, but a writer of shorter form um, or an educator, I would add in, or a sommelier, um, or really just a service professional, hospitality professional that's doing it the American way. And what I mean by that is that it's, person to person it's not super formal it can be it's technically correct and it's at, at the level of excellence of any three star michelin but it's a very more populist more one on one uh, we're getting to know each other and I'm taking care of you almost like you're my friend, but my cherished friend, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, really formal, really sometimes maybe snooty or maybe there's just only a certain customer profile that the person is is gracious to and everybody else is like, oh, if you're not spending, you know, they're not spending very much money on wine. So, you know, let's turn them and burn them. Um, Kevin's service style and his intention um, very, very deliberate was that everyone should feel so freaking awesome uh, being in the restaurant and they should feel so attended to no matter what they're spending. If they're buying the Suave Bola for like whatever it was, $14 on the list at the time, um, they should get it presented to them like and and dote, they should feel doted on mm -hmm. and um and it really really made a huge difference and i really think it set a service tone there were other great people at the time doing the same thing drew Newport's approach to things obviously danny meyer's approach to things and uh and that really set the tone for american hospitality and in the case of wine and wine service uh particularly windows on the world did yeah and and it, um it was the number one restaurant 
Number one wine sales in the country. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it was before the days of the big casinos um, where, you know, that their yeah. capacity and their audiences with the high rollers where right. it doesn't matter what the wine costs right. or whether it's real or not. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. We <laughs> Counterfeit keep it, issues in we, there sometimes. We keep it 100 here. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. shit, especially Vegas. Shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think He's there's more thinking. Chateau Petrus in Vegas than has ever has been made in total in the last 20 years. <laughs> so I'm just saying, yeah. whatever's in that bottle, it might not be the right thing. <laughs> Darn it. Oh, my God. But if you're a high roller at the craps table, you don't necessarily Listen, exactly. care. <laughs> if you're on a heater, yep. you know. And you're not paying. Give me the most expensive bottle. Yep. Um, so in 1997, April to be exact, you won the title of Best Somali in the United States. Um, tell us about that and then how you went on to represent the U.S. in the Concours Mondial. Which yeah. Yeah. So that's the World Championship of Sommeliers, and it's a it's, it's like a, Som Olympics. It is. It's a, it's an every three years uh, wow. global competition. One candidate from each member country. The members being members of the ASI, which is Association de la Sommellerie Internationale, International Sommelier Association, and um, so they host it in a different host city each year. Uh, the U.S. had um, proffered a candidate for quite a few years, but nobody ever quote made the podium. Or even close, nor did I, let me just say, <laughs> to do the spoiler thing. But um, but it was an amazing experience. And to get there, you had to win Best Sommelier in the United States. There were regional competitions, and so I won the Northeast, and then I competed against Joe Spellman, great sommelier from the Chicago area, who's a master sommelier now, um, and then uh, Michael McNeil from the Southeast. Uh, he was working for the great chef Gunter Sager down in Atlanta at the time. And um, I forget who the West Coast competitor was. I can just say that I do remember that they were all guys and I beat them. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. Um, and then I went on a crazy, you know, uh, preparation, you know, tear with ba basically with uh, Roger de Gorn primarily coaching me. Great master sommelier who for years was at Chanterelle. Um, and I think he's at, um, gosh, it's an Asian restaurant. I think he's still, still working the floor. I mean, he's like, he is the real deal, old mm. school, super humble, wonderful man. Um, but uh, so I did that preparation, and I I didn't I didn't even make the semifinals at the World Championship. But it, I'm so glad I went because first of all, I was proud to represent the United States. It was great to see it. Uh, the people who did make the finals, they actually let you watch it and they televise it and they have a, a live audience. They honestly those competitors. It was like they don't touch the ground. Mm. It was like they were not on terra firma. They were just spectacular. And so it was great to watch. And one of them um, is who's still a great sommelier. He's a kind of – I think he does the wine for uh, for Lufthansa. He's uh, from Germany and really one of the most famous in Europe, Marcus Del Monaco. Um, he taught me how to waltz because it was in Vienna, right? <laughs> right so we're waltz. in Vienna. And then – but the other thing is I met a great friend, Catherine Hall. And Catherine Hall owns Hall Winery in Napa Valley. But at the time, she was the U.S. ambassador to Austria under Bill Clinton. She had been selected by him to do that. And she was a wine lover. She grew up growing – her family growing grapes in um, Mendocino County. And uh, she heard – got wind of this competition. She was like, well, we're going to host all the, all the candidates and the delegates – at the ambassador's residence for a dinner. And um, so uh, I met her there. And then um, – and she remembered me after um, – and, and, you know, 
after a, a career in, in law and real estate and everything else in the California and then Dallas, she and Craig bought these historic properties in Napa Valley. And, uh, and, and now we're semi neighbors and really good friends. So, and so it's been, it's been great. Um, it was a, it was, you know, a wonderful thing to come out of it. And I never would have thought, you know, that 15 or 20 years later, we'd be practically neighbors in wine country. I mean, I never dreamed that I would live yeah. in Napa Valley. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Incredible value for Napa Valley Cab and Merlot. Incredible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I really yeah. – I, I push the people to that lines. a lot. Yeah. 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 yeah we, we poured um, – I hosted a, um, a virtual wine course, an eight-week course during the pandemic um, that um, – and I gave out uh, 10 – um, BIPOC and women's scholarships, full scholarships for that, to that included the wines, the glasses, uh, Coravin. They were one of our sponsors. Napa Valley Vintners was. And I featured the Hall Cabernet because it is a really great value, like you said, and it's truly it's truly emblematic Napa Cabernet. Like it has that blackberry, that cedar. Mm -hmm. It has what you're mm -hmm. looking for. It has the density. It has the velvet tannin. And it's hard to find that for under 100. Yeah. I was like, and I mean, under 100. And I mean, like, it's under, you, you know. can easy pay, easily pay way more you than You can easily pay 300 for a bottle of Napa Cab. Indeed. That has no pedigree. Right. <laughs> so, you know what? We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and we'll be right back with more. Uh, Andrea Robinson. Hey, hey, what's up? It's MJ again. Listen, we all love a sexy wine label, but the back label is more important. Do you want to know how to score a great bottle of wine every time? Turn that bottle around and look for the Skernick Wines logo. Skernick Wines has been one of my favorite portfolios since I came into the business over 20 years ago. Whether it's a $10 bottle or a $100 bottle, you can count on Skernick Wines to deliver every time. And it's not just about wine. They also have one of the finest portfolios of craft spirits. Make sure you go to their website, www.skernick.com, and check out their ever-evolving library of cocktail recipes. Listen, I don't say this lightly. Skernick is a name you can trust when it comes to wine and spirits. Okay, we're back. So, um... Let's uh, transition to your time at Starwood. Like, um, was your exit from Windows due to the the nine eleven? Was that when it was? Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. It wasn't immediate because um, we had we were two sessions into the eight week wine course that Kevin okay. taught, and um, there were a bunch of Solomon Brothers employees, and they were at Seven World Trade Center, which had had no damage, and they had this beautiful. Um, top floor executive dining room and conference center with a space big enough. And a couple of their executives were registered in the class. And we got a phone call and they said, we'd like to continue the class. If you think that, you know, a lot of your other students would, come on over and check out our space. So they let us, they let us host all the rest of the six weeks there um, every week, like pushing tall dollies of of glasses, right? Because we had to, you know, bring our own glasses and bring them back to windows and wash them. So down from the 106th floor, across West Street, like dodge the cab with like a, <laughs> a, a six foot dolly of wine glasses on a, on a, on a, you know, wheels um, and all the wines. And so that's, I can, I finished out that um, 
that class. And then Kevin actually hired another great woman wine professional, Rebecca Chapa, to backfill me because that's when I had I got pregnant with my first child. So uh, it was kind of good timing for quote maternity leave, and um, and that was uh, yeah that's that was the end of the first Windows on the World era. Okay, so um, it's your first child. When did you and John meet? How did you and your husband, John, your your partner in, in the one stemware and, exactly. and life? Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. so my first is from a prior marriage. Okay. And then John and I met in 2002, right at the end of 2002. Okay. Uh, or, or maybe early 2003. And um, he was dating another girl. In the wine business, and um, <laughs> and and I was gonna, I was doing a, a, a talk or a, like a, a breakout seminar at the first um, the first Vin Expo USA. It was okay. hosted in New York back in the in that time frame. Not considered to be a success. It didn't get a, a, a great attendance because it was like early days for people to fly that far for a conference. Now people regularly go to Vin Expo Bordeaux or Hong Kong or the USA, but um, at the time, not so much. But uh, I was doing a seminar on food and wine pairing with Daniel Balud and Gina Gallo. And uh, and John's girlfriend, who's in the wine business, goes off to meet with some clients. He's got an all-access pass, thanks to her. So he <laughs> you know, comes into the, uh, into the seminar and um and sits down and gets like the last seat and uh i noticed him he's a handsome <laughs> fella <laughs> and uh you know afterwards he came up and but this is one of the classic kind of lines which i i didn't really know what to think at the time but he came up to say hi like wow that was great and you know, hey, you're a really good presenter. Um, I'm thinking about funding a wine show with my friend who's a, a producer. You should be the host. And I'm like, yeah, right. Um, yeah, like meet me on my casting couch kind of thing. Um, but he was actually serious because uh, his friend does produce made-for-TV movies um, for the Hallmark Channel, and uh, which, of course, I adore. And um, so he gave me – or he said, well, you know, consider it. Cause, but I had already signed on to do some stuff with scripts. Okay. So, um, but I gave him my phone number. And so he did not, you know, waste much time on calling me. (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) So, um, you signed on with scripts. Um, were you doing like a multiple things? So you, you were working, were you working with Starwood at that time? And like, how, how did this, how did you, how did, uh, this, um, conglomerate that is you <laughs> begin to come together yeah it was it's kind of a jumble the the um the very first uh, t- uh the very first show was actually before this time it was um the show called quench it was a we only ran one season 13 13 episodes and that was it okay. um so it was a little ahead of its time i think maybe the reynolds rap target audience was not ready for you know us with wine yeah. craft beer and spirits yeah but it was a cool show it was a great kind of a great start uh i co-hosted that with steven olson who a lot of people know he lives here in new york city and um and uh, started the beverage alcohol resources uh, education program with master sommelier and master of wine doug frost and some other great folks and um but uh when 
at the time frame when I met John and was getting started with Scripps, I was going to be um, hosting the first wine show on their new network called Fine Living. Okay. Now, that has since morphed into the cooking channel and, you know, gone back more towards competition shows and, you know, the stuff that really sells. But stuff Fine that Living, sells yeah. Hellman's Mayonnaise. It and, does. And some Reynolds Wrap. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was really cool. So I had, and I had a, a ton of seasons of that. That was, um, that the sales team actually loved it because they were able to bring in higher end advertisers, um, you know, like fancy car companies and, yeah. and things like that, that, um, you know, so it, they felt like it expanded, it pushed their boundaries, um, and brought in new viewership to the overall idea of food television and wine and beverage. And that was really fun. And then, um, what came after that was a, what we call famously a stand and stir cooking show. Um, so it's on a set in a kitchen. This was filmed in Napa Valley. It's called Pairings with Andrea. And it was about food and wine pairing, which was, it was really, you know, a great thing because I was always able to cook the food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, the culinary education had, had, you know, was part of the foundation and uh, and then pair it and have guests and all that stuff. So it was fun, you know, and then I don't know, somewhere all in there. Uh, yeah, I guess at that point when I was doing most of the Food Network stuff or the Fine Living stuff, it was partly with Starwood Hotels. Mm-hmm. But then as that kind of, you know, we did, we launched a huge beverage training program, which they still use, and it's over 10 years ago, um, then I was sort of ready to kind of do my own thing. I had my idea for the first book, or actually it was a second book on food and wine pairing. So I uh, decided culinary school was the way to go. Okay. Okay. So you said something, and I I still think this is true. Um, How come no one's really cracked the code like on a, a wine show? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, it's a big difference between food TV and wine TV is that there's a huge diversity in wine, but it doesn't all look very different. So if we're talking about, you know, Syrah in the Rhone Valley and we're visiting, you know, these steep terraced vineyards of Hermitage, when we pour the wine, it it's going to look just like that right. barefoot so a, like, Cabernet exactly. in the bag in the box, right? an average American, right? Yeah. Like, and so it's yeah. really hard to get the visuals and the eye candy. I mean, they call it, you know, um, colloquially like food porn. When they do like a great beauty shot, like, you're like, oh, my God. Whether it's a donut or, you know, something that Eric Repair makes on Avec Eric, you're like, this is, looks so good. But a glass of wine, red wine is a glass of red wine mm. um, or white or whatever. So. I, I really believe that um, the production value has to come from, you know, great, great footage of those beautiful wine regions because that is visually astounding, right? Wine mm-hmm. country all over the world is just beautiful and it's diverse. So you've got to have that. And then I think you really have to have the stories and the personalities. And it's something that um, – and, and therefore, I also think that it's more of a long tail type topic. Yeah. Um, I, and le- I agree. Unless you turn it into like, and then then you have to say, is this the right fit? If you turn it into like a competition show or a game show, right? Or you go the real extreme, and the person is just like a, a kind of a clown comediany type of person. I think some of those things have sort of worked, but it's for those of us who really love wine a lot, we kind of want that. 
um, that sort of sideways thing where you have that moment of the waxing poetic about Pinot Noir, but you also have beautiful scenery and you have a couple of, you know, gritty, funny, funky personalities, right? If you could do that, you know, in your 30 minute show, maybe. And, and so that's, that's a special, special combination, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean... I was watching guys' groceries games last night. I'm like, God damn, this dude is a machine. He's a machine. He's a we call it the machine. Guy Fieri channel at home. Oh my but, but God. Our, my, my daughter loves that when after she, because she studies really hard. So when she wants to just totally veg out, she watches it and she remembers like, you know, eight or nine years ago, uh, both kids were really little and we were doing the Pebble Beach Food and Wine and Guy Fieri was there. And they're, and they're like, Mommy, that's Guy Fieri. And I'm like, yeah, uh, go up and say hey. And they didn't. He was super gracious and sweet. Yeah. And so, you know, they're they they're fans. Yeah. Now triple G, tri- triple D. Yeah. And I, I was telling my wife, I'm like, I'm like, and I, it's about you, but like since we're talking about television and, and food, and wine, I'm like, and look what he's doing with his son Hunter. Like he's literally, he's created he's created an asset. Yeah. That 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 Hunter can hand down to his children. I mean, literally, it it's. Yeah. And he's done a lot for restaurants during the pandemic too. So yeah. I just want to shout awesome. you out, man. Um, just, yeah. But, but um, because when you talk about like, you have a great personality and like, I just, I just think like you said um, in the research, like it was just a little, it was before it's time, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know? And yeah. then, and then there's, uh, and then I think there's other networks that are just like, you really got to be a wine geek yeah. to log on to said network that is focused on wine. Like like it's not, it's not pulling any new people in. Right. That's the thing. And I think that's also the, the part that that's, you know, a critical piece of it because you, there is this audience, new, new people audience that wants to be brought in, but boy, they are going to have to be pulled because it's an intimidating world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and there is, you know, like we talked about before, kind of the celebritization where, People, some have forgotten that it's their job to do that pulling and to make that person feel super important and super valuable. It's funny. My husband used to say, I'm the most important person in the wine business. I'm a depletions expert. Mm -hmm. Well, he's actually a diploma holder. So he's way more, you know, (laughs) educated than the average depletions expert. But when we don't remember that we all started, I, my first wine with a cork was a white Zinfandel. Mm -hmm. Um, When we don't remember that, that, you know, you have to get invited into the sandbox and and you're going to start, you know, playing with sand before you play with, you know, limestone and and schist and mm-hmm. you know, in other words, like you, it's a it has to be something where it's just so fun and then in the process people are learning something and I find that that style is is it plays well everywhere in the sense that if I'm doing a talk for, you know, investment bankers or rocket scientists or whatever, these are all like super type A, super mm-hmm. smart people. Mm-hmm. But they really appreciate, at least some percentage in the crowd appreciates it when you say it's made from Chardonnay, which is a white grape, and some Pinot, Pinot Noir and Meunier, which are both red. If you don't throw in what color, maybe 80% of the people knew that, 20% of them didn't. Right. And they're like, oh my God, this is cool. Because right. they don't feel stupid. The other guys say, oh, I knew that. Right. And they right. feel right. smart. Right. right. And the new the new people just learn something yep. without feeling dumb about not right. knowing it, right. and so I just think like little things like that um, 
it's uh, you know because you don't go up to a bunch of dentists and have them go, oh my god, really? You don't know about incisors, you know? <laughs> and you don't feel bad that you don't know. But if you feel you feel bad if you don't know, like I really don't know anything about Kimmeridgian soil in Chablis. Um, so like you know, um, I'm cowering behind my you know whatever sunglasses. Um, I, something about wine just does that, and I think it's something about the wine snob culture, yeah. which is, you know, it's it's being unwound, but aspects of it are being replaced by the, um, here's what I drank that you didn't last night kind of culture. The, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of flexing. Yeah. And, and, you have it. And, flexing. And, and, and I forgot who said it, but it's true. Um, and it's a lot of like, I took a picture of someone else's bottle and posted it to my feed. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's really funny. I mean, there's, there's that, I'd say that's at least half of it, if I had to venture a guess. Yeah. At wow. Least half, right. At it's, least a minimum. Oh, that's, so that's a whole other world of wine counterfeiting. Yeah, but it's, yeah uh, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's social media wine counterfeiting. Totally, Holy totally, moly. Yeah, oh, my gosh. You know. That's bad. Um, so Delta Airlines gives you a call. Yeah. And I... From our research, uh, so they they like what they do. Like they had like fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred bottles of wine, and then you had to whittle it down. Yeah. So what what was that like? Did you just line them all up? What was 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 it like an emprunteur for you? Like, uh... yeah. So so we've uh, the process has evolved over time, but the the objective certainly is to cast the net pretty broadly, so that you know um, a broad range of regions and players and price points can have. A shot at the um, at the selection process. Generally, kind of what what we do is we we break them down into style, we break them down into price point because each each cycle you want to have a, a little bit of something for everybody. You want to have something people have heard of. You want to have that discovery thing that we can train our flight attendants to tell them about, so that like they have this wow, I had this on an airline. This was so cool, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's really almost more. You know, I've typically tasted the wines that we look at some point some point in recent history. So I don't have to go through and taste a thousand wines. Mm-hmm. But I think but I look at a really big um a big cast of characters to try to find that right mix. It's a challenge because with a um with a publicly traded company, they have to be super fiscally responsible. We can't we don't have any subsidies for for fancy wine programs like some airlines do. And mm. um and so we have to be fiscally responsible as well as creative. And one of the ways we do it is by really working hard to educate about and promote the wines so that you know wineries will see the marketing opportunity. And yeah, there are we're buying the wine, um, but they might give us a really great price because they realize, wow, it's going to be served with food in the aisle, label presented on a menu with, you know, flair. And they say, this is, I, I want to be here. And it's my target customer, right? Mm-hmm. So so it, it's, that's kind of the, the, the approach and it's, uh, it's really fun. And then, um, you know, easily eight years ago, um, I started really pushing them to uh, make a stance around um, sustainability and casting the net more broadly in terms of diversity of suppliers. Um, it's a huge corporate mandate across the company um, and has been for you know at least five years now. And I'm really proud of that because uh, we have just had some great opportunities to, um, first of all, you know, vote with Delta's deep pockets of of wine purchasing mm-hmm. and say we're we're selecting you know suppliers that really come to us with great sustainability and corporate social responsibility credentials we want you to tell us 
how you're how you're how you're supporting that uh, because we want to align with that and we want and we know our customers care that's what we want to put on the planes and so uh, so now that's a very big focus and um, it's it's really a joy because we've been able to help some small underrepresented population um, uh, entities scale at at without which opportunity coming from Delta they wouldn't have been able to mm-hmm. or at mm-hmm. least not at the time that they did. Right. So it's a super fun thing to be a part of. Really cool. Really cool. Um, yeah, I remember when you took over and I was like, my friend, I was like, oh, I know her when I saw your name on, in, in, in Flight Magazine. It's really cool. Awesome. Yeah, it must be cool for your kids too. They can on a plane. There's their mommy's name on in Flight Magazine, huh? Yeah, it's kind of it's it is fun. And and like when they were born, um, they they immediately were given as just as a nice you know gesture like medallion status or whatever. So <laughs> so so like I would have this infant in arms to check in on the flight, and the lady would be like, "Thank you for being a a platinum medallion." <laughs> How old is that kid? Seven months. <laughs> you know, they're like, "Wow, you guys travel a lot." Well, let me explain. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it's really neat. So I know you're um, into everything else you freaking do. Um, you're a contributor to magazines like Bon Appetit, Real Simple, Rob Report, which is Rob Report. If you guys don't know, it's like the dopest luxury magazine. It's like. I think it's like twenty dollars for like an issue. One, yeah, right? it's like, the lifestyles of the rich and famous but, but magazine. Yeah, it totally is. <laughs> um, but um, you know, obviously you're a prolific writer. Let's talk about your first book, uh, "Great Wine Made Simple: mm-hmm. Straight Talk from a Master Sommelier." Yeah. So I, you know, I had uh, I even when I was working with Kevin, I wanted to write a book, and he said, "Well, you should do it." And I said, well, I can't think of anything to say yet. <laughs> so I got to wait until I, until I do. And then I, the more we taught classes and the more I, um, I did taught classes for both staff and um, consumers, I realized that the big aha moments that people have and the way they really learn about wine is by comparatively tasting wines, mm-hmm. right? It's, 100%. It, you just have to have it in the glass. And ideally, you have to have a couple of wines that are really different. So somebody can say, this one's high acid, this one's not. Then you know what acidity is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I really just had that uh, light bulb moment of saying, I need to do this. I need to write this up. And so it's a, essentially a wine course between book covers. And it starts you out with um, – Basic tasting to assess, you know, body and other key characteristics. And then what I call the big six grapes. It's sort of like the chocolate and vanilla of the wine world. You got to start with that foundation. Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay for whites, Pinot Noir, Cabernet and Syrah for reds. And then it goes from there. And it's um, I've had a lot of people tell me that they bought the book and they follow the tastings. They get together with their friends. They buy the wine, split the costs, and they follow those tastings. And they go through and do it as a neighborhood or as a block party or as, you know. Mm. Book party, whatever. So, it's pretty cool. That is cool. So you've written uh, that was uh, that was nominated for James Beard, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Wow. Um, so you have some more books. Great taste made simple. Extraordinary food and wine pairings for every palate. Yes. And then also everyday dining with wine, yeah. which actually won the International Association of Culinary Professionals Cookbook Award in two thousand and five. Right. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what was it like? So, what was it like? Once you wrote the first book, those were easy to write, or what was what was happening there? You know, it the the pairing book was a natural follow on because I I knew I wanted to write about food and wine pairing, and I hadn't seen a book that really sort of 
took uh, what I think is important in food and wine pairing, which is obviously body weight uh, of, of the dish and the wine, but then also kind of like dominant flavor profiles. Like, is it spicy? Is it lemony? Is it, you know, pickly, which, you know, is driven by acid? Is it, um, you know, buttery? And uh, so that whole book um, is, you know, every chapter is kind of a flavor family. So like there's a chapter called Where There's Smoke, There's Flavor, and everything about pairing wine with stuff that has a smoky element to it. So let's let's unpack some of these things, right? Because like what are some of the – what would you say is your most oddball pairing? Like people don't see it coming. Yeah. Um, this is uh, – this is – Truly, um, you wouldn't think of it. So this is the one. It's a basil pesto, usually on a pasta or it could mm-hmm. be a crostini, but so that so that you're getting enough of the pesto taste. Napa Valley Cabernet, and you know because you think Cabernet, everyone thinks meat, lamb, steak, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. have you. Um, but there's something about the richness of the cheese and oil and the pesto, and then the herbaceous of the basil, but it's like a sweet herbaceous. And it's just crazy. It's, it has this crazy affinity, not just Napa Valley Cabernet, but that's really right on the money with it. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband and I joke because he thinks that he taught me that idea. And I'm like, <laughs> I had it in my book before I knew you. He's in, um, the, he's in the booth over here nodding his head. He's like, I did, I did. Totally, <laughs> he's like, it's me. Oh, my God. <laughs> totally my idea. Yeah, exactly. But that's – that's um. so it's not oddball in terms of food, but I always point it up out to people because – um, there are a lot of people that maybe don't want to eat red meat, but they yeah. really would love to drink a great big wine, yeah. big red wine. Yeah. And so, boom, here's your basil pesto. And now I've even developed um, a vegan version, which is really, really good. So then now you can do vegan and big old Napa Valley Cabernet and, you know, not feel like just sort of left out of that party, which is well, fun. Well, there's tons of patrons of EMP who need to seek you out now since they've <laughs> gone vegan. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, now did this come out was it were you working on this while you were doing the show was it just was it was it hand in hand or uh, you know or, i'm trying or, to remember was it, was i think it, the show i think the i think it was between simply wine and the pairing show i okay. think so yeah okay yeah and then everyday dining with wine um what was the what was your thought behind it? why did you want to bring that forth you know i just i knew that i loved cooking um Cooking dishes and having come out of culinary school, my whole – my final exam, which is a menu that you have to prepare and all that stuff, was all driven around a wine-paired meal and the affinity of dishes to wine. And I just really wanted to give people easy and sort of already perfectly engineered recipes that go with this particular wine style or that particular wine style. So every chapter is based around a grape or style. Okay. It's fun. Okay. Totally fun. All right, so let's talk about Napa Valley. Um, when did you move out to Napa? 2004. Okay, 2004. Yeah. Um, what's uh, what's it like in Napa? I mean, with all the fires, everything that's been going on, the pandemic, I mean, everything closed down. Like, what's what's going on now in Napa in 2021 after we're, after we're well, we were coming out. Well, we're kind of coming out of this pandemic, but right. who knows what's going to happen next six months, right? Right, right. 
Yeah, Napa is um, it's it's sort of like I guess a lot of places that are that are coveted destinations. So much pent up travel demand that um, it's it, we're basically splitting at the seams. That's not to say don't come. We want you very much to come. It's a it's a our our great joy to host, especially our trade friends um, out in Napa Valley and everybody who travels out there. As Thomas Keller says, it's a place that's built on hospitality and taking care of people. And when you come here, that's what we do, and we do it better than anybody. Um, and so it's it's beautiful. It's different. Um, there are uh, hillsides that are being cleared of all the burnt trees and uh, parts that were seriously damaged. But the typical, the, the drive up and down Napa Valley on 29 or Silverado Trail still pretty much feels like it always did. Um, and uh, the, the biggest thing I would tell people is, you know, plan ahead because it's there is so much pent up travel demand. And in some cases in winery tasting rooms and restaurants and hotels, reduced capacity either because of of uh, distancing guidelines, although those have, have pretty much gone away um, for now, uh, but also like everywhere, reduced capacity because nobody can find workers. And so um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard. I've see, I see wineries giving, you know, $1,000 signing bonuses for tasting room employees. So there you have it. Whoa. Um, go West, young man. I know. I know. Might be time <laughs> Bring to go your back resume. West. I know. Um, how close were the fires to you over the past few years? 2020, um, we evacuated the night that the glass fire started. It was right across the street. Wow. And so it was like maybe three or a little, little after four in the morning, I think. Um, and I think we were one of the first to call 911, and it was raining embers in the driveway when we uh, jumped in the in the car with the dog. We had an advanced sommelier, Sharon Cowan, who is a or was a wine director at Esca here in New York. She was out there for a harvest. Mm-hmm. Poor girl had to work work a harvest during the pandemic um, and evacuate with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our house and our property were okay, which is great. And um, but it was really scary, and we had to be away for a long time. Um, but you know, it's a resilient, um, community, very tight community and uh, that I'm, I'm super proud to be a part of. And so, you know, we're back and, uh, and, and adapting to this new world. Yeah. So, um, you got these, uh, these amazing books, which everyone should check out. Um, what was your first James Beard award? For what we what did you get that awarded for? It was for actually for broadcast hosting. I okay. did a um, a PBS show uh, with a very famous PBS producer Charlie Pinsky, who used to do uh, Pierre Frenet's great shows, um, and uh, we did a, a Wines of Chile special, and that was what I I won for. So I was pretty proud of that. Oh, super cool. Um, so let's talk about your your project with your husband, John. Uh, tell me about the one which which we we have been enjoying this fine Finger Lakes Riesling out of. Yes. Um, well, this is a labor of love project. It started because all of the grape specific glassware companies. It was like there was some sort of corporate espionage or something. I don't know, but it coincidentally, in other words, in the space of about six months, about. 14 years ago, uh, all of the different grape-specific glass companies contacted me just randomly and said, we'd like you to endorse a line of stemware. And of course, they meant a grape-specific line of stemware. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. That that could be a fit. I would never want to endorse a wine because I want to be able to talk about all wines. Uh, But, you know, glassware, everybody needs a good glass. Um, So I started testing 
the grape specific glasses with the grape that they were um, sp- supposedly shaped and engineered for um, and comparing them. And I came to realize that there were certain best practices in glass design that enhanced all wines, regardless of grape, price point, age, etc. And um, and so I, I realized, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this grape specific thing because I don't quite believe in it. And um, but instead, I found a partner that was um, willing to do prototypes of the shape that basically that put together all those design principles that enhanced the wine, primarily by channeling the aromas and also by making sure you don't lose them by the by too big of a bowl. Because I think a lot of the grape specific glasses have more of a chimney oh, yeah, yeah. tall bowl mm-hmm. and you lose a lot of the detail in the wine by the time it gets to your nose. And so there was a lot of thought put into it. We developed the prototypes, tested them against the grape specific glasses over several years ourselves and with other master sommelier and master of wine palettes and really developed convic- conviction around them and then uh, just took the leap and and launched them. And uh, and now, as you, I'm sure you've seen the con- the concept of a sort of all purpose, uh, but purpose built shape glass, as opposed to sort of the classic tulip that we've always had as our all purpose, is really a big concept. So you can see that I am not God's gift to marketing, <laughs> because this is this is a, a, a like a 12 or 13 year years young, I would say, concept, and now. People are really embracing the notion um, that a single shape makes sense. Um, I, you know, have a great deal of conviction around this because of I really tested it a whole whole lot, and then I developed them. We we were really focused on making sure they were practical, so they're dishwasher safe and uh, lead free. And also super, super durability. Most of my restaurant and tasting room customers say that they order at one-third of the rate of resupply of glassware. Um, Salto. So, um, yeah, there you have. There's so many that are that you, know, you kind of look at them and they break. And and um, and coming from a, like a windows on the world where you are serving at a super high level, but you cannot afford to turn over you know quarter million dollars a year in glassware, right? Um, I just realized that that was going to be a, a something I would be prioritizing for both both the trade and the consumer. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things. Where people go, does the glass make a difference? It does. And I, I like the con- I like what you've done here. And I've been using these because they're just uh, – and these are actually I – mean, we use the red wine ones just because I don't know what people are going to bring. But there's the white wine's a little bit smaller. Yeah. Um, but I, I but find this is beautiful, this, this is beautiful in this, yeah. right? I mean, so like, you know. So you can just get you, one Exactly. Just, yeah, just, you know. And if you want, you know. If you want, just get like, you know, the red wine because yeah. it's a little bigger. So then you get your big – wine glassy fix yep you know yeah um, and then some of my restaurant customers they go all purpose with a, the white and you could do exactly you could do that yeah I mean, because you it's 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 you get a good uh visual right of of a pore size right because right. people now re- understand because i remember the days when people when you'd pour to the proper level and they'd say i asked for a glass of wine, not oh, a half glass. I know, I know. There's, <laughs> there's, there's that too, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. Like, 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 no, you got to be able to, you know. Yeah. I think people have learned that you need a bit, you know, the capacity is there for a reason and that's not to fill it to the top like a big gulp. But, um, yeah. Well, while we're on glasses, because um, uh, I have you here and you you research glasses and you're a master small, okay? Um, the move away from champagne flutes. 
Talk about that. Well, I'm seeing. I, I mean, that's something I've noticed over the past couple of years. It's. Like. It's. I totally 100% agree with it because champagne is a wine, and it's one of the most complex wines in the world because um, they usually are a blend of three different grapes, multiple different vin- vineyards, very often multiple different vintages, with what they call reserve wines that are have quite a bit of age on them, mm-hmm. and therefore have developed all this new complexity, right? And so, to put all of that. Potential expression, detail, complexity, aromatic layers, and so on into a flute where you now have a silver dollar size opening, and your nose can't really sort of appreciate it, and um, and it you you miss a lot. So by going to a properly shaped white wine glass where the uh, the the rim is narrower than the widest part of the bowl by okay. a good margin, mm-hmm. so that you're channeling those aromas as the bubbles break to the surface. You're bringing out the wine's potential. You're missing it otherwise, I think, in the flute, which you also are filling all the way up. So you're not really giving this bowl this fishbowl of an area for all of those volatiles to collect in the glass where you can smell them. And if you can't smell, you can't taste flavor, right? You can only taste sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and umami, a temperature and texture. You have to have smell and therefore the nose of the wine to be able to taste, you know, honeycomb and, mm-hmm. and hay and flowers like we're getting in the Riesling. <laughs> oh, really good stuff. It's just getting better and better. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with all your years in the business and – passion for it was there like um like what was the bottle what was like the the bottle that really hooked you it was um crew grand cuvee Mm. champagne so on the top on that topic um and i I love that wine i love to drink it out of a white wine glass to say the least because they go back at least seven to ten years in reserve wine so Mm. it's one of the most complex on the market it's not one of the cheapest so my husband calls it the doghouse wine it's the ticket out (laughs) (laughs) if he if he's in there um so he tries to avoid um doghouse uh doghouse infractions when possible uh it's also my mother's day wine for sure and i love it and um was that when you were uh it was actually at the International Wine Center. International that wine. was the wine that lured me off Wall Street. Wow. Wow. A little bit wow. of a pay cut, but it was worth it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm sure it was, but I think just your life is probably so much richer and fuller and <laughs> you live in Napa, you're doing all right. Doing all right. <laughs> I am. Um and you deserve it. Um Thank you. So like as we wrap up, uh there's gonna people say so people anyone who's on Wall Street or has a nine to five and they want to get in food and wine, particularly after the pandemic. Uh, you know, people started reevaluing their lives last year. I'm like, what am I doing? Um, any advice you could give people um, with all you've gone through and as a wine, true wine insider, where you think it's going? Like, what advice could you give someone who w- wants to transition um, besides don't do it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Would you give someone <laughs> give someone, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, well, a little bit what I did, and there, but there's some so many new opportunities. Save a little money, like save some money, um, or you know, just sort of uh, edit edit the parts of your lifestyle that you know cost extra and maybe don't give you 
all that much of, of a ROI, a lifestyle ROA. And, um, and then go ahead and leverage what's out there in terms of, you know, uh, free or inexpensive education content. There's so much now, um, especially, you know, I've got a video wine course, but there's so much content out there that you can access and begin to not only, I, I love that it's gone towards video and audio and podcasts and things like that because you can both, you can learn while you're maybe standing in line at the grocery or mm-hmm. while you're driving. Mm-hmm. So you're not reading a book, you're not watching mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also hear pronunciations. That's huge. Yeah, because I still fuck shit up. All the time. <laughs> I'm not. I just like. I'm like, it's vuv clico. No, I used to say vuv, and it's vuv like love. But you know what? That's you okay. Know? Either one. They, you, know? they, you can't go so far in being too 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 exacting, yeah. right? <laughs> um, it's you're not saying v v u v cli- cli- yeah. So that, that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, And, uh, but that's, I think a big thing. Also think about your skill sets that translate over. So if, if you are, if you do have legal expertise, if you do have contract expertise, if you do have graphic design business, um, you know, uh, market research, any marketing, anything like that, all of those things apply in this industry. It is a very global industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go ahead and look for an opportunity to get your hands dirty. It can start out with things like volunteering at a wine school in a big city. Um, or, you know, maybe you can take some of your vacation time to travel to a city where there's a wine school that you can attend for a little bit. Uh, but the best thing, if you can, is to volunteer to wine school or take some weekend hours during the holidays at like a retail shop yep. when they need extra hands because you're going to meet people mm-hmm. uh, that and build a network of professionals. And if they see that you're earnest and authentic, they're going to help you. It is a very, very great industry in terms of mentorship. Um, mostly, I think there are some, some holes, but um, I would take, I would take that approach and then, you know, start looking at job boards and start like you would, if you were trying to coming out of SMU and trying to get an economics or business job, you'd be reading the Wall Street Journal religiously. Um, you would, you know, subscribe to, you know, winebusiness.com's daily thread and you'd just subscribe to your podcast and start to just get the lingo and get the lay of the land. And then you'll, you'll find a way to make the leap. Oh my God! That where did time go, Andrea? It was really good to see you again. Great to see you. Like it's been like twenty years or some shit. Like, <laughs> like literally two thousand. He's like that's not my story. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you for making this happen. Taking the time to come down. Uh, I know your time here is limited, so it's been really great. Thank you for um, just being generous with your knowledge and the stories and and uh, your vulnerability and your authenticity. Thank you. Um, Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing, how they can stay in touch. Sure thing. Um, website's andreawine.com. That's where a lot of the content lives. But also um, less on Facebook, a little more on Instagram, but both are Andrea Robinson MS. I'm not nearly as prolific and good at all that stuff as MJ, but Mr. Black Wine Guy is here. I'm just watching and trying to. She's just winning James Beers Awards <laughs> and like has a litany of wine education. <laughs> and I just drink and talk shit. But. I get to do it with really quality, high quality people like you. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you here. Larry but, King and Black Wine Guy. Come yeah, on, man. That's I, I listen, that's, I'm kind of, I'm kind of going, I'm like, Hey man, there's, there's, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to crack this thing. Yeah. You know, maybe you got to start doing like the stupid wine tricks thing or, no, or, okay. or uh, new, new lyrics for wine people. Yeah. Jimmy Fallon. I, I know, right? That'd be fun. <laughs> that could be fun. That could be fun. I mean, okay. That could be fun. Yeah. I, I do. Like I said, like, uh, 
you were paired with Dr. Dre. So sweet. You know, okay. You can't spell Andrea without Dre. Dreer. <laughs> Dre all day. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. It's your boy MJ. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 